In the early years of my ministry, it seemed I heard quite often the question, do you really believe in a real Satan, a true devil that exists and does the things that Christian talk about the devil doing? Of course, my response would be yes. I would explain my answer and you would see so many leave with the question of, I don't know, I, I question that. I find it intriguing that that question is not asked very much anymore. Particularly among our younger generation, it seems to be fairly well accepted that there is an evil power in this world. Partly because so many supernatural experiences are being claimed and observed by the pagan world today. With the church of Satan on such an increase even in our own community, right here around us, our young people know that there is some reality to all of this. They hear of some of the unusual, spectacular things that are happening in the name of the evil one. Youth gangs today are growing in, in numbers and in allegiance with Satan, and they're experiencing some supernatural things taking place. Our youth, a number of years ago, had a special detective of the forces of a unit put together in our community that just deals with those who are in cults aligned with Satan and came and shared with our students what is going on in the communities right here where we live. Remember a number of years ago, I was working among college and single young single folks and in another community and a family asked me if I would be willing to engage in a conversation hopefully leading to an explanation of the gospel with a, a girl who was just out of college and I said that I would be happy if it could work out and they arranged it at their own home and this young single girl and I met and we began to talk. She told me of her background, that she grew up in a home where her mother and aunts and uncles and most of the relatives were witches and warlocks. She told me unusual stories of things she had encountered during her lifetime, things that just uh, were eerie. But she says, I watched, I saw, I, I know what's going on, and it's, it's been hard. She didn't align herself with her mother and relatives, but at the same time was very much not a follower of Christ. And so I began sharing the gospel with this young lady, and as I did, I sensed she was very interested. But as I got closer and closer to the heart of the gospel, concluding what it means to be a follower of Christ, as I saw her looking very interestedly with expectancy to hear what I was saying I noticed that there was a sound coming from her I didn't see her mouth moving but a sound was coming from her that was again quite eerie to the point I finally stopped to say what is that if I could replicate the sound it would be something like hee hee and it just continued finally I stopped I said why are you making that sound she says I hear that sound but she says I'm not making that I can't explain it I know it's coming from me, but this is part of what I've been talking about. With that, I pursued through the gospel, and I said, would you like to make the Lord Jesus Christ your Savior, your Lord of life? 
And she said with great sincerity, yes, I really do. I'd like to. And because of the circumstances that were prevailing, I thought that it may be best to do something that I typically wouldn't do, but I said, I think we ought to bow before God in the ceremony of inviting him to come into your life. And so let's just kneel here at the couch. Would that be okay? And she said, fine. And so I moved forward and got on my knees. As I looked up, I noticed she was still seated, but she was rocking forward and she'd come forward and she'd come back. And then she'd come forward and then she'd go back. And finally I stopped. I said, what are you doing? She said, I can't get up. And she'd lean forward and she'd be thrown back. She says, I can't get up. And finally, I said, just with the strong presence of the reality of Christ, I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up. And with that, she came straight forward, got on her knees, invited the Lord Jesus to come into her life. And today, she's married to a pastor, and she walks faithfully with Christ. I believe there's a Satan. I believe there's an evil power. Most people today would agree. But what we don't really know are what his tactics are, and we certainly do not understand, for the most part, who his allies are. Now, before we get into that, I'd like for you to take a brief glance at some of the things that have been inserted in your bulletin. You will see that today, on our outline, we are working through the week entitled The Beast, The False Prophet, and The Great Harlot. These are the three allies of the evil one. We are going to cover three chapters in this message and in order to do that I obviously cannot hit every detail so please let me give you the big picture if you get this and nothing else you'll be able to understand you would be aware if you have listened to the three keys or you were here during that time that the story of revelation is the story of the first coming of Christ to the end of time where Christ comes again at the same time of the rapture for the believer and the judgment, the final day. And you find that in all seven occasions as the story is told, as the segment of the chapters we look at today, 12 through 14, it will begin with the coming of Christ and it will end with the judgment. But here's how it's broken down. Chapter 12 is going to explain Satan's attacks. It's going to explain his attack on the Lord Jesus Christ to begin with and that failed attack which then turns into an attack on the church and even individual Christians and we'll see that attack in chapter 12 then 13 takes us to understand how he can be as powerful as he is he being the evil one and the reason being because he has three tremendous allies One will be called the beast, the second will be called the false prophet, and the third will be called the great harlot. Those are nicknames. I'll give you their full name as we walk through the text. But if you can remember that, three allies, the beast, the false prophet, and the great harlot. And please do not think before we begin the study that, oh, this is referring to an individual in history who is the beast, an individual who is the great harlot, an individual who is the false prophet. You'll find that's not what the Bible teaches, I will suggest. Study, find out for yourself. But three allies. Then the 14th chapter is going to be a heavenly perspective. We're going to go to the throne of God. We'll see the Lamb standing there. Some angels will herald some very important messages. And it ends with the reapers preparing for judgment. And it ends with the judgment. Now with that, I'd like for us 
to look at Satan's attack, his attacks in chapter 12. Begins with verses 1 through 12 of chapter 12, which tell us an attack that takes place on Christ himself. It reads, beginning in verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, and that is the church, as we will see clearer and clearer as we go, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and a head, on her head a crown of 12 stars. That's referring to the glorious, exalted aspect of the sun, the, the exercise of dominion of the moon, the victory, the wreath of 12 stars, and so forth. But then it goes on to say, and she was with child. We'll see very soon the child to be Christ. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And so now the people of God, the genealogy we follow in Scripture is about now to give forth a male child to be the Savior. Now we come to verses 3 and following, and it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. There's Satan. We've identified him as the dragon, specifically in earlier text having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Love to go into that, but for time, let's move along. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. I'm going to suggest to you that here we're talking about the vast number of evil spirits that aligned with Lucifer and were cast from heaven. Goes on to say, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, that is before the church, who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Do you remember Herod's requirement to have all the male children to be killed in the effort that the Christ child would not survive? But she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's prophesied in the Old Testament, referring to the Messiah, the rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne, obviously referring to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Now the church is being persecuted. The evil one is seeking to devour her. But she has one to run to, Almighty God, and His grace and His provisions of mercy and protection and love and is nourished even by the means of grace through the Word of God and through prayer and the other means that God gives to us for uh, 1,260 days, which we've already earlier identified to be the gospel period, the age between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, synonymous to the 42 months The time, times, and a half time, three and a half years as it's often referred. Now, moving along, we see that there is a war that's going to follow, and we've already addressed this war in our keys, but let's read it again. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven. Keep in mind, this is after Satan, as Lucifer, the angel, has been cast down from being one of the heavenly hosts of Almighty God. He is in rebellion already. But notice where he is. He's in heaven waging war. With who? With Michael. Michael, who in Daniel is referred to as the great prince, which stands for the children of of God's people. In Jude, he's referred to as the great disputer of Satan. So there's a war being waged, 
and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. So here is Michael and his angels. Here's the dragon with his angels, and there's a war being waged as it's described, figuratively speaking. And they, that is the dragon and his angels, were not strong enough. There was no place found for them in heaven. Don't be confused. We'll get there in just a second. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, this isn't a literal presence of Satan in the heavenlies as we would think of it, but suggesting here that he has lost his place as an accuser of the brethren. If you can remember the story of Job, if you've read it, he stood before Almighty God and he's accusing Job saying, yes, but if, then Job wouldn't. If this, then Job wouldn't. And he's accusing Job. And God gave permission as he granted to do certain things to Job. He is in the heavenly, so to speak, as he's bringing these accusations. But since Christ has now rendered satisfaction for sin, there is no semblance of justice for his accusation against believers. What we're suggesting here is he cannot point to the Savior's unaccomplished work any longer. Prior to this, he could say, yes, Christ, I know what you say you're going to do. I know you say you will be the redeemer, that you will pay the penalty, but you haven't done it, and I will take your life if I have to. You will never go through redemption accomplished. I will stop you. It is my plan. Almighty God, knowing differently, gives him certain reign and opportunity to attack, but the Lord Jesus goes to the cross. He pays the penalty of sin. He's resurrected. He ascends into the heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And now the evil one is cast down from any such accusations, can no longer do so. Doesn't it bring meaning to Romans 8, beginning in 33, where it says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then it goes on to say, who can separate us from the love of God? Tribulation? No. Principalities? No. Powers? No. Height? No. Depth? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a great story. And then it picks up in verse 10 to show the victory that now results. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. Look why there can be such a celebration and such a victory. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. And because of the word of their testimony, the believer's testimony, and they didn't love their life even to death, meaning they were willing to be martyred for their faith. So here's the implication, the next verse, verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. 
suggesting now Satan has his full wrath to be displayed. People ask me, Satan certainly is so brilliant. He's so clever. Does he not know what's going to happen? Well, he's not omniscient. But he does know that he's lost the war because redemption has been accomplished. But I think of him as a mad dog, a dog that's mad and doing things and and snapping out viciously, though he's trapped and he knows he can't get loose. He's as a mad dog. Or maybe, to put it a different way, there's a sense in which he is truly deranged. Yes, brilliant, but as some brilliant people can come to the point of being deranged, they, they can't think with wisdom. They can't make decisions that would be smart decisions, but they've got a mind that's so brilliant. And the evil one seeking whom he may devour. So there's the attack on Christ. Didn't work. He lost. But he's mad. He's on the earth, so to speak, seeking whom he may devour. So now we see Satan's attack against the church. He has a first attempt. Verses 13 and 14, it goes like this. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that is the church, who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. And you'd really have to go back. It's a rich study into Exodus and see how God talks about him being as a, as a uh, provider, as an eagle sweeping down and taking his, his eaglets on his wings and carrying them to safety. The same analogy used here. It was given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, a year, and times two years, and a half time, a half year, from the presence of the serpent. There's your 42 months, your 1,260 days, however you want to talk about it. Now, having fled from the presence of Satan, you and I, the church, no longer can experience his deadly attack. He can't destroy the church now. He can inflict his wounds upon us, but he cannot destroy us. So there's a second attempt. If he can't destroy us, look what he does next. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. That is, the evil one is trying to engulf the church in a stream of lies and deceptions, but it won't work. Verse 16, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So there's the attack on the church throughout the history from the first to the second coming of Christ. And now the last verse of this chapter, we see Satan's attack now on the individual Christian. Look at his anger, 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He couldn't kill the church. So he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. There's the individual Christian, you and me. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Christian, you and I stand not guilty before Almighty God. 
when the evil one tries to emotionally tear you apart by saying, and you think you're worthy of God, look what you just did. Look at your moral failure, and you call yourself a Christian now, and you think that God's going to accept you and use you and bless you? Do you think you can have a good family now with your failure? Well, you just don't listen and say, hold on. Can't accuse me. I have the righteousness of Christ. I'm forgiven and cleansed. As I confess my sin, I'm put in such fellowship with Almighty God that I never have to worry about such accusations. And Christian, don't be overwhelmed by the ordeals that surround you. The fiery ordeals, as Peter talks about them. It's going to be a part of life because the evil one is trying to get us. Take hope and comfort in the wings that he provides to take us into his presence and to keep us from personal defeat. Great story, chapter 12. Now we want to see the allies. This piques our interest, obviously. We've heard about the beast, maybe, or the false prophet. Well, he has a masterful plan, three allies. We see the first two allies introduced in chapter 13, and then in chapter 14, we'll only really study one verse in that last chapter, and it's the verse that introduces the third ally, who will be the harlot, as we will nickname him. Let's look, first of all, at the beast, and we're going to call the beast in his proper name, the beast of the sea, which is described in verses 1 through 10. Now, the sea, from Isaiah 17 and onward, we're going to see it, even in Revelation chapter 17, referring to the multitudes of peoples and nations. And so let's read, first of all, about the honor that is ascribed to this beast. Verse 1, and he, that is Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Just remember that, where he is. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, that is, out of the peoples and nations. It's not just one person in one nation or one... No, it's coming through all the history of the peoples. Out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Love to go into that. Time will not permit. But verse 2, it says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. And I saw one of the heads, one of his heads, as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. Now, this beast is described in a composite form of the leopard and the lion and the bear and so forth. Now, if we were to go to Daniel 7, we would see the same composite beast, and we know it's talking about empires there. Some think the seven heads would represent seven empires, beginning with old Babylon up to Rome, the sixth, and then there's dispute as to the seventh. I'm going to suggest that more than likely that this seventh head, as we're talking about the wound and so forth, is referring to what is present among us always through the history and is now, and that would be the persecuting power of Satan operating in and through the nations and governments of this world. And up to this time, they were up to Rome, the sixth, but there's yet more to come, and here it is, the beast that will exist throughout the history of time in its many expressions of nations and governments and power structures. We're talking here 
about man's self-exaltation, whether it be in the marketplace, industry, doesn't matter. Wherever you see the anti-Christian mentality in power structures of our society, this, the evil one, is going to use to his benefit. Do you, do you often wonder when you read the, the news or hear the news on television and hear some of the decisions that our government is making? And you say, how can they do that? Are they absolutely, totally illogical? How can they do that? And I hear that and I say, oh, I know. Because there's a great influence called the beast. And we're seeing it operative. It's under an influence of the authority of Satan himself. Talks about a fatal wound. Satan received a blow at the cross that killed his cause. He's defeated forever. Mortally wounded, but though he's still active, seeking whom he may devour for a short period of time, it's as if he now has risen again for a short period of time. We see there's great homage paid to the beast, beginning in verse 3, it's, or end of verse 3. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon. They follow the beast, but they worship the dragon. Because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? Saying, I'm falling under secular humanism because look at its power, and I want to be on the winning team. Look at the little church over there. What are they? Just a bunch of religious right-wingers? Why should we align with them? Oh, no, I don't want to be associated. Let me just be over here with the power structures of society. beast is all around us. You skip down to verse 8, it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written, that is, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain, which is the record of all of God's children through the history of time. And so here are people worshiping the dragon by following the beast. Now there's hostility that's going to be demonstrated by this beast. Beginning in verse 5, it says, And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months. There's the same time from beginning of Christ's coming to the end was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And so you would expect there's going to be hardship predicted for you and me. My personal worship this morning was out of 1 Peter 4. And it just that's where I am going through the book. And I happen to come to the 12th, 13th verses in there. And it says, Christian... You're going to be persecuted. When you go through the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. This is what it's all about. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. It's not to say Christians protected by God are not going to go into captivity as people are being arrested worldwide for being followers of Christ. If anyone kills with a sword, with the sword he must be killed. They're still going to be martyrs today. Here, though, is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. The beast lives by the power of the sword, 
The believer lives by the power of the Spirit. And our weapons are perseverance and faith. God has granted them to us. Well, this particular beast, being a reality, should remind us how blessed we are to live in the country in which we live. But at the same time, we better get prepared because I predict based on the word of God the victories of the dragon will become more numerous. And we've got to stay concerned in the meanwhile with all the peoples who are part of our family, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are being persecuted and martyred all around the world. Pray for the persecuted church. Now we see the second ally. He is the beast of the earth. The appearance of the beast, verse 11, and I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. That is, the earthly peoples, the wisdom of the earth, which James talks about, the wisdom that does not come from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. I could just imagine John seeing this vision, and in the midst of seeing this beast, he then sees the lamb, and he goes, yes, my master, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's here. I get to see now the lamb. He sees the little horns like a lamb. But then he hears the voice, and it's no voice of a lamb. This is the dragon disguised as a lamb. He has the voice as the dragon speaking for the dragon. It's another ally. He looks so good on the outside, but so wicked on the inside. Here we're talking about the false religions, false prophecies of the world with its prophets and leaders. And he is servant to and in cooperation with the sea beast. He's later going to be nicknamed in Scripture the false prophet. So in essence, we have the Satan's, the uh, evil one's beast, his first beast being Satan's arm. And now we have a second beast which becomes Satan's mind. The strength of the arm, the thinking of the mind. Look at the activities of the beast. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, verse 12. Skipping down to 13, and he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven and so forth. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Verse 15, and there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Let me tell you, heathen religions and heathen philosophies go together as great bedfellows with heathen politics. Look at the World Council of Churches today. Have you ever wondered, if you know anything about the World Council, how is it that the World Council of Churches could give so much of its money and attention and affirmation to communistic causes? I mean, this is religion who is marrying here to the power structures of the world that are anti-Christian. People are always asking me, well, wait, 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 what about all the other great religions of the world? 
What about the many religious people that are not born again stuff, but I mean, you know, they're into their religion. They have their Protestant or Catholic beliefs or they have their Muslim beliefs or whatever. What is the big deal? It's good stuff. And I said, yeah, it looks kind of like a lamb, doesn't it? But listen to it speak, and it will speak as a dragon. And so should you and I be so confused at the religious activities of the world that lead people just up to Christ but stop them from getting far enough? I told somebody sharing my faith with them this week, I said, you know, the hardest person in the world to reach are those people who have just enough religion to inoculate them to think I'm okay. As Jesus says, those people, they don't even know they're sick. Jesus came to those that were sick, those he could heal, the publicans, the sinners, who said, yes, I have a need in my life. Just get enough religion. It'll convince you there's no real need, and what a wonderful job the false prophet is doing throughout our world today. He performs so many signs. Christian, please don't be so naive. I see it happening all around us. Christians are saying, oh, look at the powers that we have. And they're talking about signs and wonders that I believe God does perform. But don't be so foolish to think that just because you've got an experience, it validates something to be true. Not at all. On my campus, when I was in college, the Hare Krishna were speaking in tongues, were prophesying, telling what was happening in the future, having tremendous powers. Does that mean we ought to line up with the Hare Krishna? No. Christians say, oh, look what's happening. I said this and it came true, or I had this feeling or thought. Or they're going to say, I spoke in such a way. That validates that it is of God. Maybe, maybe not. Be so very careful. There are powers of this world. There are means to produce signs and wonders that may not be from God himself. We go to the word of God to determine what is truth. That's where we begin. Christ himself said in Matthew 24, and false Christs and false prophets will arise, will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now we come to verses 16 and 17, and this becomes interesting. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. Now, this is where we, oh, have, they, have you heard they're starting to put marks on people's hands now to identify whether they can buy something or not in the grocery store? Oh, it's coming. It's the mark of the beast. I hear it all the time for, for years. Verse 17, he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, even the name of the beast or the number of his name, which in the last verse we'll see in a minute is 666. So it's all this stuff. Oh, there's going to be a name. And did you hear it? 666 that's representing such and such. And did you know that that's going to be put on hands and foreheads? And if you don't, you don't get credit cards. You won't be able to buy. You won't have currency and so forth and so on. Let me tell you, this has been going on since the time of John. In fact, it's been going on long before that. If you go to Exodus, you find it there. Exodus 13, you find it in Deuteronomy 6. God says to his own people, you're to have a sign on your forehead and you're to wear a sign on your hand, on your forehand. Why? What does that mean? It's simply saying you think as a Christian in your world. You act and you do 
and you live as a Christian in your world, and the world will know, as in Thyatira and other places we see in Revelation, well, they'll know, they'll see you're Christians, and you'll lose jobs, you'll have persecution, you'll have pain and struggle just because they say, oh, you're a Christian. Some of our young people have gone to their high schools and have said, I stand for Christ, and they say, I see the mark on your head, Christian. I see the mark on your hand. You won't do it with us, will you? You won't think like we do, will you? Well, you're out of here, and you'll be separated from our group forever, and you can't be our friend, and we'll ostracize you. We'll make you suffer. It's happening all over the world. And the evil one, they have their marks, right? The mark is on heads and foreheads. I meet with people for lunch. I meet with people on the, in the playgrounds, and I say, ooh, look at the mark on his head. Look at the mark on his hand. Listen to the way he's talking. Listen to the way he's thinking. Look at the way he's acting. Pretty evident. It doesn't take brilliance, but it takes wisdom. Look at the last verse. The arithmetical name of the beast, verse 18, here is wisdom. Wouldn't take a whole lot of wisdom. All you had to do is look for a number on somebody's head, but it takes some wisdom. And let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, one of the worst translations we could have in the book of Revelation. There is no article A before the word man, and it reads totally different when you read it as it should be. Calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of man. And the number is 666. Seven the number, the divine number representing God. Six, that which falls short. Seven, 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 representing the trinity of almighty God. Six, 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 the trinity of man who thinks he's almighty but really is expressing failure upon failure upon failure. Humanity represents man's effort to usurp the rightful power of God as sovereign over the universe. Boy, haven't you heard it through the years? Back, they used to write, and they said, oh, it's Caesar. This is Caesar, 666. He's the guy. And then it's Nero. And then it was Adolf Hitler years back. And then some of us remember when it was Kissinger. I don't know if you remember. And now there's a whole bunch of people. And the way they come to that is through an ancient mystical practice called gematria, which is basically the study of numerical values of people's names and you gain it by ascribing a numerical value to each letter of a particular alphabet, the Greek or Hebrew typically chosen, and you can play little games with it, and it'll come out with numbers. And so you take Kissinger or Hitler or Nero or Caesar, and it comes out 666. And by the way, there would be hundreds of you here that would come out 666 as well, depending upon which value you gave to the numbers and which alphabet you used, it would work. And that's what's happening all over. People are making this so spectacular. And is that not Satan's great plan? It's like the magician who says, look right here, look right here. And over here, he's doing something when you're not looking, and he's slipping one in on you. He says, oh, wait for the 666. There's going to be one coming. You watch him. Ooh, he's going to reign. He's maybe in your generation. Keep your eyes open. And all this time, the evil one is doing his destruction around us while we're saying, at least the beast isn't here yet. At least we don't have the false prophet yet. Thank goodness. We don't have the harlot yet. So that we might kind of get the big picture here. Notice the counterfeit unholy trinity. You have the dragon, the sea beast, and the earth beast. The dragon, how much like the father, God the father, 
is he when he initiates the sea beast coming and gives him his authority? Isn't that what God does for the son? The sea beast, even an imitation of the Christ who is the exact representation of the dragon. And he's dealt a mortal blow and he rises again. Wow. And then the earth beast as to the Holy Spirit. Earth beast causes men to worship the sea beast and to manifest the miraculous. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does in the work of the Trinity. It is such a counterfeit. Close, but not the real thing. Now we have a third chapter, and it is just a couple of minutes for closing. We will not read it. You can take the outline and do more justice as going through it verse by verse. But I want to note to you, you remember verses, verse 1 of chapter 13? I said, remember, he, Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore? Look how chapter 14 begins. And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And now we get a moment, as we often do in each of the seven sections, a little parenthesis to comfort the church. Here John and all of us have seen the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth and all the horrors and the damage that's going to take place. And so Almighty God says, hold on a minute. Let's just see from a heavenly perspective. And you're going to see three times I saw in verses 1, 6, and 14. It breaks down the, the chapter for you as my outline suggests. First, you see the lamb stands in heaven, and you'll see the appearance of that lamb and then the activities of the lamb, in, or the activities that are going on in heaven. It'll talk about the attributes of the Christian in verses 4 and 5, a wonderful study there. Then we come to the angels who appear as heralds. And they're going to herald a number of messages. First, they're going to proclaim the urgency of obedience to the church. They're going to proclaim the futility of the world to the church. They're going to also proclaim the consequences of disobedience. And that summarizes the second point. But I want to draw your attention to verse 8. Because this is the third ally being introduced. And we're going to see this ally in chapter 17 and following in a big way. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great... She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Nicknamed the harlot later. This representing the world as a center of seduction. We're talking about here the center of industry, commerce, art, culture, wealth, sex, drink. Just go on and on. Anything that seduces the believer. To see the glitter, the glamour, the luxury of the world. And the word fallen, fallen, fallen. Past tense, though it's falling constantly, there will be the ultimate fall. It's as good as happened. We're going to get into that study in chapter 17, and it's a fun one. I'll just say this. This harlot, she is gorgeous. She is beautiful. Jewels, beautiful face. I mean, she's just dressed unbelievably. She's gorgeous. She looks like premarital sex. She looks like divorce as a means to get what you really want. It looks like drink. It looks like drugs. I mean, it looks like all kind of good stuff. It looks like money. But you know what happens? What's going to happen is 
we fall in love with her. And the night after the wedding, we wake up, and she doesn't have her makeup on. And let me tell you, this is one ugly woman. (laughs) And we go, how could she look that beautiful and now be that ugly? We'll tell you more about it later. Then we come to the last. The last is the reapers prepare for harvest. The harvest, first of all, that receives God's rewards. And there we're at the very end time now. And there's going to be the rapture of the church, and they'll receive it judgment. They'll receive all the rewards. And then lastly, 17 through 20, wouldn't we expect it at the end? Because you always end with judgment. Every seven segments end with judgment. The harvest that receives God's wrath. And there it is, the final judgment. Let me close saying this. Recognize there are two armies, Christian. Seeker, know there are two armies. There are two commander-in-chiefs. Choose now who you're going to serve. We win as Christians. The church will be victorious. I'm glad I'm a part of her. Would you like to come join us, seeker? Be part of the winning team. Get ready for a fight and a battle, Christian. Seeker, if you come to Christ, not the bed of roses, all problems gone, there'll be a new war. But it'll be war worth fighting and one we can win. The gospel is the story of God's righteousness given to us through the death of Christ. Our sin taken by him on the cross that we might be accepted, forgiven, never to be accused by God again, never separated from the love of God through Christ. Seeker, would you receive him even today? Christian, would you turn your heart, control over to him as we pray together? Our Father in heaven, we bow our hearts' attention to you, thanking you for your love and your grace. Come into the hearts now of those that would seek you, May they come to know you even now. May we as Christians recognize the allies all around us. May we have new eyes to see, wisdom to understand the 666. And Lord, may we be faithful to you even till the end. For we pray this in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.